We've been in Ruth for, uh, this is our uh, fifth week of the series that we're doing. It's the last last week that we're doing in Ruth. Um, so I am going to read the, the whole text, but I want to just read a, a piece of it first. Um, and uh, before we do that, can you, can you guys hit the lights in the back so we can see what we're reading here? So again, Ruth is a, it's a story, and it's meant to be read all together, but um, there's a lot in every chapter, and even covering one chapter is a lot. So um, while it would be nice to just do it all at one time, we didn't think you were really probably prepared for a six to eight hour sermon, so we broke it up here, um, and we're going to hit each, kind of each chapter, uh, concluding with chapter four. So I'm going to read a section of chapter four. And then I'm going to summarize chapter 3, kind of as a lead-in to chapter 4, and then, uh, and then we'll officially get started here. So I'm going to read, and then we'll pray. So picking up, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. So then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So let's pray. Jesus, I come to you right now. I thank you for your word. Thank you for leaving us a tangible reminder that's perfect, inherent, that we can have, Lord, that helps us, helps our hearts that are prone to wander, that are prone to fill our desires with things other than you that don't satisfy. I thank you, Lord, that you use us as broken people to bring about your plan and your glory. Pray that you would use me today as a broken vessel. Just pray that you would speak truth. Pray that you would be glorified. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our hearts are dull, our minds are numb apart from your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you will work now, help us to be free of distractions, and I pray, Lord, that you would just speak clearly through your word. Be with us and give us grace. In your name, amen. So as a quick reminder, let me, Sean did a great job of chapter three last week. Um, I just want to do a quick summary and then we'll jump into chapter four. So in chapter three, Ruth goes to Boaz and Boaz has been working all day, and then he had a big feast, and he's tired, and he falls asleep. And Ruth goes while he's sleeping and lays down next to him. Now, this is a rash plan that's been crafted by Naomi, her mother-in-law, that said, I want you to go to Boaz in the middle of the night, lay down next to him, and he'll tell you what to do. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about bad decisions, a lot of times late at night um, with an unexpected opportunity is when I picture a lot of bad decisions happening. Not that you can't make bad decisions in the middle of the day, but you have Boaz, he wakes up here next to him, and there's this woman that he's interested in, by the way, and she's interested in him. And she basically, he wakes up and she says, hey, will you marry me? Which is kind of faux pas. Even, even today, you know, we still kind of expect 
men to get down on one knee and ask. But she says, will you marry me? And so Boaz wakes up. This thing can go a lot of different directions at this point. Uh, but thankfully, Boaz is a man of character, a man of integrity. He does not take advantage of the situation. He does not do anything shameful. And he says, um, yes, I will marry you, but there's, they, there's this whole line of when you had a family member who died, you had other family members that were supposed to marry and become what's called the kinsman redeemer. So Boaz says, uh, I would love to, and I'm willing to. However, there's somebody closer to you than me. And so Boaz and Ruth, both are interested in each other. They would like for this to go one way. And I'm sure there was temptation to go around the plans of God, but they decide not to. And Boaz says, look, this is how things have got to go. I want to make sure we follow the proper procedures here. And before you and I get married, that it's done the right way. So that's what happened, has happened the night before. Now you get here, it's early morning, and that's where chapter 4 picks up. And when you read chapter 4, chapter 4 really breaks down into three, uh, and as I was reading through it in my mind, it broke down into three different sections. There's the deal, which is verses 1 through 10. Then there's the blessing, these blessings that are spoken over Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, and that's verses 11 to 17. And then you get the legacy, which is what happens, what God does through Ruth and Boaz kind of throughout the rest of history. And that's verses 18 to 22. So the deal, we're going to look at the deal first, then the blessing, then the legacy. So picking up in verse 1, this is what it says. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now the gate, that's where all the serious business went down in that time. So this is like the barbershop of antiquity, okay? So this is where people go when you need to transact business, this is, the, this is the war room. So Boaz goes to the gate. In, the, in that time, the cities, uh, had a lot of them had walls around them to help protect you from marauders and uh, invaders and that kind of thing. And so the gate is how you got in and out of the city, hence the name, the gate. So the walls where this stuff happens is near the gate. And you have these benches near the walls so everybody can kind of sit in the shade because there's no A.C., so, um, and it gets hot, and so, um, so they're there, and uh, Boaz knew that this guy, this is going to be a family member, is going to be coming out. So, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz, keep in mind, Boaz and this guy are family. Now, we don't know exactly how they're related. I kind of like to think they're cousins. And he's like, hey, cuz, come sit down. We need to talk. And the guy says, okay, yeah, let's talk. So Boaz is related to this guy. And um, this guy's also related to, he's closer in relation to Elimelech. So we don't know exactly. But in kinsman redemption, they would kind of start closest, which would have been a brother. And then they would kind of work out. So, you know, uh, so Boaz is wherever this guy is. Uh, Boaz is one more redeemed, is one more away. Now, one thing to notice, it says, uh, and behold, the Redeemer. We don't get the guy's name. Now, we get a lot of names in Ruth. We get Boaz's name. We get Ruth's name, Naomi's name. We get, we're, we get Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, and they're her two dead sons, Malon and Chilion. We get their names. They don't even appear in this story. 
um, until after basically they're mentioned in reference to them being dead. Um, we know Boaz's mom was Rahab. We get the whole lineage from Boaz and Ruth to David. So you get a lot of people mentioned in Ruth and a lot of connections made. But this guy's name is not mentioned. It's as if the author of Ruth doesn't want to give this guy any due because you're going to see in his character, he's not really interested in the things of God or the plan of God. So this guy intentionally is left nameless almost as a way to, to kind of shame or slight his character and who he was. So, um, so and this is, a, this is a public setting, okay? So we'll see later in verse 9, uh, it says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, so that the, Boaz is going to end up there with a group of people, but it's not just the people involved in the transaction. This is open to the public, so to speak. And as you can imagine, this is probably what's about to go down is some of the juiciest gossip that's happened in Bethlehem in a long time. So probably a lot of people are there. They're probably watching as it unfolds, whispering to each other, like, oh, how do you, what do you, can you believe he said that? Do you think he's going to say yet? You know, so this is a, this is a very public thing. Um, and it reminded me, Again, just of the, we're going to see a lot through this text of Boaz being the shadow of the true redemption to come. So Boaz was a man, he was sinful, uh, he, he had a, I mean, he had issues, he needed salvation the same as us, but God uses his life and the working through his heart and the Holy Spirit to show a shadow of what's to come with redemption later through Jesus. So just as this whole transaction is going to go down publicly and, and Boaz has kind of gathered everyone, Jesus was crucified publicly. He was tried publicly. He was taken. This happens in, in the city of Bethlehem. This Jesus was crucified in the city of Jerusalem. He's taken outside the city and crucified very publicly. And so just as Boaz, just as Jesus redeemed us publicly by dying in a public execution, Boaz is going to very publicly redeem Ruth with this kinsman redemption being very public. So let's go on and see. Boaz is going to lay out the deal here for this guy. So picking up in verse 2, And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, So you have Boaz, you have the potential Redeemer, and you got the ten guys. So that's kind of the twelve people, almost like a, like a jury kind of in a courtroom. It's kind of the twelve people there together, they're the ones that are in on this transaction. And the elders needed to, to kind of verify and approve uh, whatever happened, what, whatever went down. So they're asking for people to speak in here to this situation. So, um, so then he said to the Redeemer, he being Boaz, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So Boaz begins to lay out the opportunity for this guy. 
Now this guy, the, the author may be doing this for our benefit, because again, Bethlehem is not like New York City. It's a small town, and this guy's closer to Naomi, closer to Elimelech than Boaz is. So this guy may know the situation, but Boaz lays it out very clearly, just so everybody's on the same page, what's happening here. Naomi has left with her husband Elimelech. Elimelech died. She's come back, and there's this family land that has to be redeemed. And so initially, the guy's like, well, yeah, I'll buy the land. And so you're thinking, man, the book, this is, this is a surprise ending. I've been set up the whole time through chapter 2 and 3 to think Ruth and Boaz are going to end up together. And now this guy is saying that he's going to come in. And so you, you're kind of set up for this disappointment, and you're thinking maybe it's not going to go in Boaz's favor. But this guy's not interested really in being a kinsman redeemer. He's interested in getting some land and making a quick buck. He's thinking, hey, this day's going pretty good. I'm about to add some real estate to my portfolio. That was unexpected. But then Boaz wants to make sure that everything in the law of God is honored and that's required is going to be fulfilled. So he kind of pulls that guy closer and is like, bro, hold on. Let me finish explaining the deal before you commit to it. So then he goes on to say, if you want the land, you've got to take Ruth, the Moabite. Again, remember when she comes in in chapter 1 and 2, when people refer to her, her as the Moabite, this is a, a term that's kind of dripping with inferiority because Mo, the Moabites were a cursed people who started as a result of Lot and the incest with his oldest daughter. And they were enemies of God. So he's saying, look, if you want this land, you have to take this, this, widow, Mo, this Moabite widow, Ruth, and you have to marry her. And not only that, but when you have kids, those are not your kids. Those are Elimelech's and Malon's kids, and you're going to carry on their name and not your name. And because this is a small town and these people are all family, he probably knows that Ruth and Naomi are a package deal. And remember, Naomi is this widow who's trying to engineer her own salvation, and she's angry at the world and says she wants to be called bitter. That's how she wants everybody to refer to her. So now he's going to get this woman that he doesn't really want to marry, who comes with this mother-in-law who's angry and bitter. This is like every guy's dream in a mother-in-law, right? <laughs> so now he's got her and his inheritance ceases. So as soon as this guy gets the full picture, he shuts it down. You can almost hear the like, but, well, uh, uh, like you know, when somebody asks you to, to do something and you don't really want to do it and you don't have a good excuse, this guy's, you know, fumbling. And he's like, hey, no, he's stiff arms. He's like, uh, you take it. I don't, I don't want to cut off my own inheritance. So when it was just a business deal, this guy was all in when it was only reward. Once it's going to cost him something, he's out. And we're meant to see his character contrasted with the character of Boaz. His character highlights basically who we are, and Boaz highlights Jesus and salvation. So Boaz is willing to give up his own family inheritance. He's willing to buy a piece of land that he cannot own permanently. So he buys this land, and then he and Ruth have kids together. He has a son. The son is the land's going to end up in his son's uh, hands. But remember, his son is carrying on a different name. So Boaz is buying a piece of property he can't own long term, and he's basically cutting off his family name to continue on somebody else's family name. So again, it's a shadow of of Christ. Christ comes. And he sacrifices himself. It costs him everything. It costs him his relationship 
with the Father. He's cut off from God and killed for our sins to redeem us, basically to bring us into his family. This guy, we see his character, either he was um, a man of poor character who was willing to take the land, not honor the redemption. Remember this kinsman redeemer idea, the law of Moses has been given a long time before now. So God's given the law through Moses. The idea of a kinsman redeemer is common knowledge. We're going to see later when we talk about Perez that even several generations back, this idea was practiced. So this guy's either willing to take the land and take advantage of two widows, which God strongly condemns in Scripture. He talks often about not mistreating widows and orphans. So he's either willing to do that just for his own benefit, or he's completely ignorant of God's law, which means he has no regard for the things of God. To not understand the kins, what it means to be a kinsman and redeemer in this context, in this culture, would mean that you have zero interest in the things of God. So either he's willing to violate God's law, or he has no interest in even who God is or what God requires. And that's who we are. We are rebelling from God. We are born, natural-born sinners who want to run and rebel from God. And Jesus comes in and adopts us into his family. So the deal goes on, and we, we see the kind of final transaction of the deal in verses 7 and 8. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal. Now that very first part says where this was the custom in former times. So Ruth is written a long time after this, all these events happened. And we know that for a variety of reasons because of this, a passage like this, uh, like verse 7, that's telling you, hey, what they used to do. And then it also has the lineage of David. Now David is two or three generations down Ruth and Boaz. So to know that David's going to come and be a great king in Israel, it has to have been written after that at least. So um, so they're, they're kind of, for our benefit and for the Israelites at the time who would be reading this, you get this background information. So he, so to confirm a transaction, one would draw off a sandal and give it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he takes off his sandal and he hands it to Boaz. Now, for me, it's not a big leap to understand why this fell out of practice because I don't think it's that exciting to get somebody's shoe to confirm a deal. And in that time, there were no cars. People walked around in sandals on dirt roads that were dusty and muddy. So that's the kind of sandal you're getting. You're not getting a sandal straight from the store. That's the kind of sandal you're getting. I have to do a lot of transactions in my job, and I'm thankful that we're not exchanging footwear all day long. So it's not a big leap to see why somebody said at some point, hey, you know what? Keep the sandal. I will, I'm good. I don't need it. The transaction's confirmed. We're all square. You leave your shoes on. So then verse 9 picks up, and Boaz said to the elders and the people, so he's about to make this public declaration. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz, again, 
shows his character and he shows his integrity with this public announcement. So everybody likely understood 100% what was happening in this transaction and what all was involved. But Boaz wants to make it crystal clear. He makes this public declaration that yes, he's buying the land. And the reason he's buying the land is so that he can become Ruth's husband to carry on the name of Elimelech and Malon and cut off his own inheritance so that their inheritance can continue. So he makes this very public declaration to the elders of the city who are condoning this transaction and again to all the people who are around that want the the good gossip. So he's telling everybody. So there's not going to be any way for him to weasel out of this down the road when he says, you know, if if he gets in a couple years and decides things are hard and he wants out. He's leaving himself no option here. Now, is he really leaving himself no option? Is he really feeling a lot of pressure that, man, I've made this public declaration, now I have to make good on it? He might be, but maybe he's motivated out of love and not just duty. And so he knows that it's going to be a joy to do what he's called upon to do, to, to take Ruth to be his um, wife, to have Naomi and care for her, to father children for another inheritance. And so it speaks volumes to his character that he's motivated out of love and not just out of duty. And again, we see a shadow of Christ here because Christ comes with nothing to, to gain by taking our sin. We're rebelling, we're running from him, and still he wants to come and he wants to pull us into his family. And so when, when God changes our hearts, he changes our motivation. And so the things that we do and the things that we pursue they can, that's why he says his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Because when he changes our hearts and we're motivated by love, things that might have felt burdensome or weary are no longer that way because his Holy Spirit is working through us. So that really summarizes the deal. Now we're going to get this series of blessings. So the blessings are what come next. And there are two or three of them. So verse 11 through 12 is the first set. It says, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So they're they're like affirming what Boaz has said. So, you know, in our tradition, when you go to a wedding and your your presence there kind of affirms that, you know, yes, I love this couple and I'm excited that God has brought them together for marriage. And so they're saying, yes, we are witnesses as to what you've just said. May the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. So the first part of this blessing is they're saying, uh, we accept it and we want to bless you. May you and Ruth be as great and as fruitful as um, Rachel and Leah. Now remember, Rachel and Leah were married to Jacob. And Jacob, God took and changed his name to Israel. So Jacob is the patriarch of Israel, and and all of Israel is his own namesake because God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. So at the time they speak this blessing, this is the highest blessing that they know how to speak because literally Jacob is the one whom God birthed Israel through with his 12 sons. And so they're trying to speak the highest blessing that they know how to speak onto, um, onto Ruth and Boaz, which is very nice. And God's going to honor their words, but he's going to do even more than that. Because Jacob had 12 sons, and Jacob was a man who had his own issues. He was very deceptive. He tricked his brother, his dad, 
his father-in-law. He wrestled with God. Jacob was a guy who had a lot of internal issues, yet God worked through that to set apart a nation to bring himself glory. But God's going to do something even greater through Ruth and Boaz. He's going, they're going to be in the line that brings about the Savior of all humanity. So God's going to answer their blessing, but he's even going to, he's going to, to up the ante, so to speak. Then you get this other part of the blessing. It says, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring of the Lord, that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, you may be thinking, Perez sounds like a cool name. He was probably a cool dude who had a nice family. It would be fun to hang out with. Well, you'd be wrong, my friend. Let me tell you about Perez and his family and his parents. So Perez, we find out through Genesis chapter 38, comes into the world in some pretty tumultuous circumstances. So Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So he's the fourth son. He's uh, in the line of Judah is where David eventually comes from, and then Jesus. So Judah's important, but you're going to see Judah had a lot of issues. So Judah has three sons. Uh, the oldest is Ur, then Onan, then Shelah. So Judah finds a wife for Ur, whose name is Tamar. So Ur and Tamar get married. You're thinking, I don't see how this is going to go wrong. It sounds pretty good so far. Well, hang on. So Ur is so wicked, it says, and this is not my interpretation, it says it in Genesis 38, he's so wicked, God kills him. So now you have, a, somebody needs to be redeemed. Ur's been killed, so now he can't carry on his family line. So Judah gives Onan to Tamar. So Onan, does this sound familiar? He's going to redeem Ur. He's supposed to have kids to carry on Ur's name. Onan decides this plan stinks. So he never does what is necessary to conceive a child with Tamar. And Genesis 38 goes on to tell us that Onan is so wicked that God kills him. So now we're two sons in with Tamar. We have no kids. Both have been killed because they're so wicked. Onan is the anti-Boaz. He's called on to be the redeemer and he refuses to do it and pursues his own selfish desires. Again, it's a shadow or a picture of us rebelling and running from God. So Judah's down to one son, Shelah, who's not fully grown as a man yet. So he says Tamar, says to Tamar, he's, he's only a boy. When he grows up and becomes a man, I'll give him to you. We'll go, I don't know, three strikes you're out. Anyway, so Jacob or Judah, he either lies, bold-faced lies to Tamar, or he changes his mind later and just decides to deceive her. Sheila grows up, becomes a man, and Judah decides, I've wasted enough sons on Tamar. We're not going to try for round three. So Tamar figures out what's going on. She sees Sheila is now a man. Judah is not showing up at her door going, hey, want to get married to Sheila? So she dresses up as a prostitute to have Judah solicit her. So that's two pretty crazy things happening in that one sentence. First of all, Tamar is dressing up as a prostitute to get to her ex-father-in-law, whom she had to know would solicit her or the plan wouldn't work. So Judah, this is probably not the first time he's done this. It doesn't say it happens other time, but I would imagine that she had some idea that he would go for this or she wouldn't have given it a try. So the plan works. Judah shows up. 
solicits Tamar, and then the fruit of their one time together is Perez. That's how Perez comes into the world. Happy blessing. I will speak the blessing of Perez over anybody who has a child. Just call me. I'll be happy to do it. So they come and they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you. So again, this may not make full sense in our mind, but Perez is part of the line Judah is the main one that God identifies clearly early on that the Savior is going to come through. And so he ends up using Perez to be in the line of Jesus. And again, we get this um, just brokenness of sin and God being able to come in and redeem things that we mess up and we break and we tear apart. And so we go on and then Ruth and Boaz get married. Again, we see the shadow of Jesus here because he leaves his, his, his place as the ruler of all creation, and he comes, and he takes our sin. And, and he does, God is able to secure this, even through all of this hurt and pain and sin of Judah and Tamar. So Boaz took Ruth, picking up in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and she gave, and, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So Boaz and Ruth get married, and then they consummate their marriage. Now, remember, earlier in the book, we're told that Ruth is married to Malon. And we don't know how long they're married, but Malon dies, and they don't have any kids. So Ruth, we're meant to see, is barren, because she and Malon were married, and no kids resulted from that. But God comes in, and he does what he always does, he uses his supernatural power to, do, to take things that confound us and to bring about his purposes. If you look in the first three generations of the Israelites, the people that God set aside to bring his name glory and, and to bring about this, his salvation plan for all humanity, two of the three women, Sarah and Rachel, were barren. And God comes in and he supernaturally works and he gives children to Sarah when she's in her old age, in her 90s and to Rachel after she's been barren for many years, and then here to Ruth. Ruth was not able to have kids with Malon, and then God comes in, and he opens her womb, and he gives a child. Now, we all have areas in our life where we're barren. We all have areas where we need God to supernaturally come in and work. And again, it's a shadow of Jesus. He comes in, and he, he takes the things that confound us that seem too hard for us, and he works his supernatural power. So we go on in verse 14, and we're going to see some women speaking, verse, speaking blessings over Naomi now. Verse 14 through 17. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and began and became his nurse. And when the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So these women come in, and there are three blessings that happen here. 
Two of them, they speak, and then one of them is indirectly with the name of Obed. So the first one, it points to God's greatness. Now remember, this is Israel and in the time of the judges. There were some dark times in the time of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, there were many times where you hear the phrase, and the people of Israel turned away from God and pursued idols, and it did not go well for them. So this is not a time where everybody's living in the Bible Belt and everybody loves Jesus. This is a dark time, and these women do all that God has done through Ruth and Elimelech rejecting God's provision, going to Moab, God bringing them back, giving them a redeemer, then giving a son. They want to show off God's greatness and power. So they are recognizing through this supernatural turn of events that God is great and that he is glorious and that he is the one that we were created to adore and to glory. And that's the only way that we'll find satisfaction and joy in our hearts. And so they want to speak these blessings over her and say that he, his name will be renowned in Israel. And then they go on and they talk about Naomi and Ruth, the fact that Ruth is more dear to Naomi than seven sons. That's a very significant statement, especially in that day and time. Because unfortunately, in that time, men and women were not viewed as equal value or equal worth. Men were viewed as superior and women were viewed as inferior. Men were the ones who carried on the family name. Men were the only ones who were afforded opportunities to lead or for economic advancement. And so for them to come in and say that Ruth is more valuable than seven sons, God has changed their way of thinking. In fact, even several thousand years after these events took place, women still virtually had no standing in society or any rights. And so this is something that, you know, only recently has changed. And so for them to come in and say, to recognize the value of who Ruth is and what God has done in her life, for them to come in and say what they did, that she's more valuable than seven sons, that can only be done by God transforming their thinking. And God has the ability to do that for us. We cannot see things as they really are. We cannot see the reality of our situation or the world around us without the work of the Holy Spirit. But God can come in and he can change our hearts, he can change our thoughts, and he can change our desires. And then the third thing is these women, they name Obed. Now, Obed is a derivative of the name Obadiah, which means servant of God or worshiper of Yahweh. Yahweh was the Hebrew term that was most commonly used to refer to the one true God. So the the holy God of Israel, they referred to him as Yahweh. And a lot of times names were given in the hope of that's what that person would bear out or represent. So you get this name of worshiper of God. Again, these women, their, their whole thinking has, has been realigned to see the importance and the need for us to glorify and worship God. And so they give this name to Obed, that they want him to be a worshiper of Yahweh. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a provision of God showing off his amazing power and turning hearts. Now, the last five verses are all genealogy, and it can be easy to read and be like, all right, bunch of names, Ancestry.com, we can move on, no problem. But I want to read it because it is important. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Again, we talked about Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. 
Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So Ruth is very clearly in the line of David. There's no way to deny it. In fact, even in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, there's a whole list of Jesus' genealogy, and Ruth and Boaz are listed together. It's almost a list of only men. It's almost only the fathers, but Ruth and Boaz are both named there. So it's very important. God wants us to get it through our thick heads that he has brought Ruth into his lineage, that he's brought this foreigner, this person who was cursed of God, and he has redeemed her and redeemed the line of, of, of uh, salvation. And so I think there are three things that we can see by Ruth being in the lineage of Jesus. Um, the first is that he took somebody who was a foreigner and he grafted her into the family of God. And that's ultimately what we all are. We're all born sinners who are rebelling from God. And if you think about grafting in a branch, a branch doesn't come from nowhere. It's not a seed. It's not something that's pulled out of a ground. It's pulled from another tree. They cut off a branch, and then they, you essentially glue it, match it onto the new tree. So we were in the tree or the vines of death and destruction and rebellion. And Jesus talks in his gospel in 15, or John talks about, Jesus says in the gospel of John, chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. And he talks about how you can do nothing apart from me. The only way to bear fruit, the only way to have joy is to abide in Christ. And so God is taking this, this root, this branch of rebellion, and he's grafting it in to his family. And so he's pulling Ruth in. And again, it's a picture of us. We are rebels who hate God and want to run from God. And yet he breathes life into us. He grafts us. He takes, cuts us off the sin of destruction off the tree of destruction, and he grafts us into his family. And so that's the first thing with her being included in. The second is not only does he put Ruth in his family, but he uses her in his redemption plan. So not only does she get to be included in the people of God, not only is she living in Israel, but God directly includes her in his plan. She's listed in the lineage of David and in the lineage of Jesus. And that's what God does for us. He doesn't just save us. He then turns through his holy through the Holy Spirit and his work in our heart to use us as part of his plan for all of his perfect plan for all redemption of humanity. So God not only saves you, but then he turns around and uses you to carry out his sovereign plan. And then finally, we see God work his rescue plan for all of us despite rebellion. So again, Ruth or Naomi and Elimelech left Israel. They left the provision of God. They go to a foreign land to try to make their own way. God orchestrates bringing them back and then finding a redeemer and including Ruth in the lineage of Jesus. And so I think there, there are two things to glean from this. First is um, we should not, we should take sin seriously. So they did, Sean did a great job in his first sermon on Ruth when he opened the series, highlighting the rejection of God's provision, the rejection of God by going to Moab. So it's not that we have now this license to sin. In fact, Paul is very clear. He warns us, do not sin so that grace may abound. He says, don't take advantage of God's grace. That's not what the heart of God is. Um, and so it's not that we now can rebel and God can always work it out. But we also don't have to feel paralyzed when you're faced with a difficult decision or you're faced with something and, and you're not sure exactly what to do. You don't have to be paralyzed that you're going to thwart the plan of God. 
God will bring about his sovereign purposes. He will bring about his redemption plan. And so if you are seeking the Lord and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, he's going to be faithful to lead you. He will not leave you. And then the final thing I want to note about the lineage is that we see Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandfather and great-grandmother of David. Now, we know Boaz is, and if you go back far enough, you hit Perez, right? That's not how you want to come into the world. And so at some point, you have, there, at some point, God changed something in Boaz's line because you have Judah and Tamar in this really dysfunctional situation that would even be a scandal today, bringing him in Perez into the world. But somehow between Perez and Boaz, God has shifted the family trajectory the trajectory of this family, because Boaz is a man of righteousness. He is a man who loves God, and he passes that on, because we see, we don't know a lot about Jesse, but we know he was faithful. Uh, We know that he was faithful to Israel. He was faithful to the king, and then we see David. David comes as the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, and he's a man after God's own heart. God describes David, his thoughts, his passions, his desires literally overlap with God's own heart. And so it doesn't matter what your family history has been. It doesn't matter what you did in high school or what you did in your 20s or how you even came into the world. Again, think about Perez. God has the ability to supernaturally transform and shift the whole trajectory of your family. And my God did that in my life. He, he began working in my mom and he shifted the whole. Our family was all headed for destruction. He began shifting her heart and then that... that um, you know, precipitated down to her three children. And I pray we can't control our kids. We can't force them to do what's right. But I pray that we can be the fragrance of God and the gospel to them and that they'll see the destructiveness of sin and the beauty of the gospel. And that can literally set a family that was headed for destruction for generations in a whole nother direction. And that's what God does here with Ruth and Boaz. So it doesn't matter where you have been up until this point or who your ancestors were or the mistakes that they made, God has the ability to remake your heart and redeem your life and set your whole family on a different trajectory. So we're going to move with that in mind of all that Christ has done for us to the Lord's Supper. And uh, there are a couple tables up here. There's one in the back. And um, this is a family meal. Christ makes it very clear that if you're a believer, if you've put your hope and your trust in Jesus, and this is a time to reflect on all that he's done for us and how he's redeemed us. If you're not a believer, then, then don't partake of this meal, but use the time. This meal is only open to those who have, who have experienced God's salvation, but God's salvation is open to all. You can use this time to call out to him, to ask him to forgive you, to purify you, to save you. You can go to somebody near you. They'd be happy to pray with you. And so we're going to use this time to reflect, and we're going to, have, we're going to do actually two songs today instead of one, so there'll be extra time if you want to pray, if you want to go to somebody and pray with them or, or be prayed for. Um, but let's use this time to reflect on all that God has done to graft us into his family, to redeem us, and to save us. But we're going to sing, and then I'll come up and close this at the end. Let me pray first. Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are faithful to it. Thank you, Lord, that you use broken vessels. I thank you that we are saved because of the work that you have done, not because of our desire or our will or our talents or our abilities, Lord. I pray that our hearts 
would be sensitive to your gospel. I pray that our minds would not be numb to all that we know. But I pray, Lord, that you would fill us right now with your spirit. And I pray that you would increase our gratitude, increase our hunger for you. And I pray that our eyes would be truly open, Lord. We cannot manufacture a desire to pursue you. We cannot manufacture spirituality, Lord. We need you. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts right now. In your name, amen.